If you have your Bibles, open them please to Job chapter 15. Last week we saw that Job answered the third friend, Zophar. And toward the end of his response, we hear these words, If only you would hide me in the grave and conceal me until your anger is past. If only you would set me a time and then remember me. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. And in these words, we hear hope. And it continues in the verses that follow. chapter 14, by the way, verse 15, you will call and I will answer you. You will long for the creature your hands have made. Surely then you will count my steps, not, but not keep track of my sin. My offenses will be sealed up in a bag. You will cover over my sin. As we saw last week, what Job yearns for is not some paradise, but rather a personal relationship that is marked by conversation and is marked by grace and forgiveness. These are not things we have heard from his friends. They were all about cause and effect. Job did something wrong. That's why these terrible things have happened to him. We hear faith in Job, but we also hear despair. Is there a future at all? Is there something that we call eternity? Verse 18 but as a mountain erodes and crumbles and as a rock is moved, removed from its place, as water wears away stones and torrents wash away the soil, so you destroy man's hope. You overpower him once for all and he is gone. You change his countenance and send him away. Great faith and then deep despair. And one would think that at this point, as they had done at the beginning, Job's friends would simply sit there with him for another seven days and seven nights and be silent and practice what we've called the sacrament of silence. Let me just remind you of what we read about that. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Well, what has changed? Is his suffering still not great? Why can they not be quiet? Their speeches to him were in response to his primal scream that we saw in chapter 3. And the first speech was from Eliphaz, whom we assume was the oldest. He's sort of the, the leader of the pack. And he starts out with encouraging words. This is in Job chapter 4. If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? but who can keep from speaking? In other words, is it okay if I say something? Think how you have instructed many, how you have strengthened feeble hands. Your words have supported those who stumbled. You have strengthened faltering knees, but now trouble comes to you and you are discouraged. It strikes you and you are dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence and your blameless ways your hope? He starts out rather encouraging. Well, three speeches later and Job's responses we hear a completely different tone. Look at chapter 15. This is our text, verse number 1, verses 1 through 6. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, Would a wise man answer with empty notions or fill his belly with the hot east wind? Would he argue with useless words, with speeches that have no value? But you even undermine piety and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. 
Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. In these words and those that follow, we hear no compassion, we hear no grace. In this second speech of Eliphaz, this is a second round of speeches against Job, there are two parts. In the first one, he rejects Job's claim to wisdom. And secondly, he describes the plight of the wicked, a.k.a. Job. He sees Job as a wicked man because that's why these things have happened to him. He starts out by saying basically that Job is not wise. And in these verses, you find uh, a going back and forth between rhetorical questions, you know, where the expected answer is no, and then definitive statements. So Eliphaz will, you know, it's, it's in many ways quite sarcastic. And then he will make a definite statement. The issue is simply this, is Job a wise man? And Eliphaz concludes, no, he's not, because a wise man would not do this. If you look at the second verse I just read, would a wise man answer with empty notions or fill his belly with the hot east wind? This is a very polite way of saying that that Job is full of gas that his body should expel. Okay, He's being polite about it. But that's what he has reduced his friend to. It's just hot air that comes out of your body. Would he argue with useless words, verse 3, with speeches that have no value? The answer is no. Of course not. A wise man would never do this. Now the statement. But you even undermine piety your sin, and hinder devotion to God. Your sin prompts your mouth. You adopt the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, not mine. Your own lips testify against you. In other words, Job, you don't act like a wise man. You, in fact, are acting in the opposite way. And then in what follows is just scathing sarcasm. Eliphaz is responding to Job's claim that he is not inferior to his friends in wisdom. But that's not how Eliphaz hears it. We saw it with Zophar, with the ex exaggeration. Well, here with Eliphaz, he overinterprets what Job has said. He, what he hears Job saying is, I'm wiser than you guys. Job never said that. What he's saying is, I have wisdom just like you do. And here we are, four friends, we're trying to hash this out. And you all are ganging up on me as though I know nothing. And I have wisdom as you do. But Eliphaz hears him saying, I'm wiser than you guys. And so he just unloads on him. Verse 7. Are you the first man ever born? Were you brought forth before the hills? Do you listen in on God's counsel? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What insights do you have that we do not have? The answer is Job is no wiser than his friends, but he never claimed to be. According to Eliphaz, in the next verse, the wise elders of the ancient times are on Eliphaz's side. Verse 10, the gray-haired and the aged are on our side, men even older than your father. And then he changes tactics in verse 11. Are God's consolations not enough for you? Words spoken gently to you? Okay, where are God's consolations? Where are the words gently spoken? Through Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. You may remember that Zophar claimed to speak for God. Now Eliphaz is claiming that they all speak for God, and the consolations of God and the consoling words, the comforting words, come from his friends. 
I don't hear much consolation in what they've had to say. But he continues, verse 12, Why has your heart carried you away, and why do your eyes flash, so that you vent your rage against God and pour out such words from your mouth? What Eliphaz and his friends fail to recognize is that Job's frustration and even anger are not against God, but against God's silence. Why has God not spoken? The reality is, and the friends don't see this, Job trusts God. But he trusts him in a way that they're unfamiliar with. It's what we have been calling an upside-down trust. He trusts that God can handle whatever Job throws at him. Job is frustrated. He's angry. Why is God not speaking to him? Why is God not answering him when he needs to hear him the most? But he doesn't walk away from God. He's not turning his back from God. One might argue he's raging against God, but that's because he believes that God exists. Verse 14. What is man that he could be pure, or one born of woman that he could be righteous? Did Job ever claim to be pure? No. And actually, in chapter 14, we hear Job say in verse 4, Who can bring what is pure from the impure? No one. By the way, we've heard this accusation before. In chapter 4, uh, Eliphaz said, Can a man, or he asked the question, Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? And then Zophar, the third friend, said, You said to God, My beliefs are flawless, and I am pure in your sight. Um, Job never said this. His friends are putting words in his mouth. They are creating a straw man and then ripping him to shreds. Job never claimed this. It is interesting that Bildad, in his speech, claimed that one could be pure before God. Um, Job never claimed that, but Bildad's like... Um, but if you, if you will look to God and plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore you to your rightful place. No. Job's friends need to listen to what he is saying and not to what they imagine he has said. Verses 15 and 16. If God places no trust in his holy ones, if even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is vile and corrupt who drinks up evil like water. Simply put, Job, you are not pure. By the way, if you do a copy and paste, this is almost what Job Eliphaz has said in his first speech. In chapter 4, verse 18, if God places no trust in his servants, if he charges angels with with error, how much more those who live in houses of clay, whose foundations are in the dust, who are crushed more readily than a moth. So this is what Eliphaz says to Job, to summarize. First of all, there are four reasons why you are not wise. First of all, you need to speak with moderation. You're just, you're just like blowing up, and you just need to sort of measure what you have to say. Um, to this, I would say, Eliphaz, you need to listen to your own advice and take your own advice. Secondly, he says, you are a bad model for the young. See, wisdom is something that is to be passed on to the next generation. And what the friends perceive Job to be doing is turning his back on convention, on tradition. And this is dangerous. Are you kidding? You are going to corrupt the young. That's what Socrates was accused of doing. 
We should keep traditional, conventional wisdom, and Job, you are flying in the face of this. Thirdly, he says, Job, you are unwilling to allow for mystery, that wise men accept that there is mystery. This is, is almost laughable because they are saying, Job, we know why this has happened to you. Job doesn't know. To him, it's a mystery. To them, it's plain as day. You did something horrible. Now horrible things have happened to you. Lastly, they accuse Job, or Eliphaz does, of refusing the wisdom of the aged, of the mentor, the mentors, one who is older than Job and Job's fathers. Verse 10, the gray-haired and the aged are on our side, men even older than your father. While they seemingly cannot see it, Job's rage against, uh, Job's friends rage against him because he threatens their way of thinking, their theology, and their view of God. But Eliphaz isn't done. Part two, what happens to the wicked? And it opens with an introduction, verses 17, 18, and 19. Listen to me and I will explain to you. Let me tell you what I have seen, what wise men have declared, hiding nothing from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given when no alien passed among them. What's Eliphaz saying here? He's going to explain to Job what he has seen. And by the way, you may remember in his first speech, he claimed to have a vision. A spirit came over his face at night, and that's where he got all this information. He's going to explain to Job what the wise men of the past have said, what has been passed down, and what has not been contaminated by foreign influences. That, I think, is what he means by verse number 19. In NIV, it's in parenthesis. Um, to whom alone the land was given when no alien passed among them. Uh, Theologically, they are xenophobic. (laughs) Our theology has not been contaminated by aliens. This is pure wisdom. This is passed down, and no one has come in and contaminated our way of thinking. And now he unloads on Job. From verse 20 to the end of the chapter, if you'll follow along. All his days the wicked man suffers torment, the ruthless through all the years stored up for him. Terrifying sounds fill his ears when all seems well, marauders attack him. He despairs of escaping the darkness he has marked for the sword. He wanders about food for vultures. He knows the day of darkness is at hand. Distress and anguish fill him with terror. They overwhelm him like a king poised to attack because he shakes his fist at God and vaunts himself against the Almighty, defiantly charging against him with a thick, strong shield. Though his face is covered with fat and his waist bulges with flesh, he will inhabit ruined towns and houses where no one lives, houses crumbling to rubble. He will no longer be rich and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the land. He will not escape the darkness. A flame will wither his shoots, and the breath of God's mouth will carry him away. Let him not deceive himself by trusting what is worthless, for he will get nothing in return. Before his time, he will be paid in full, and his branches will not flourish. He will be like a vine stripped of its unripe grapes, like an olive tree shedding its blossoms. For the company of the godless will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of those who love bribes. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil. 
their womb fashions deceit. What is Eliphaz trying to say? He's trying to convince Job that the state of the wicked persons is desolate and hopeless, and that Job is suffering the fate of the wicked. Ergo, he must be a wicked person. Job's earlier blessings, his earlier prosperity, were ephemeral. They were transient. They were disguised that they were something that disguised his true self. That all along, Job was a wicked, wicked man. But for a time, he had the sheen of blessing. And now it's been ripped off. And now the real Job is revealed for who he is. God has finally uncovered his wickedness. Job needs to repent and turn back to God. Um, As we will see when we get to, to the end of the book, Eliphaz is so wrong. The three friends are so wrong in their analysis. How is Job to respond to this? Those who claim to be his friends believe him to be a wicked person who is suffering exactly what he deserves. So now Job responds in, verse number, in chapter 16. And as we have seen, you have to be ready that at any moment Job is going to shift from conversation with his friends to a conversation with God, from the language of debate to the language of prayer. In this response, Job barely addresses his friends. We have six verses to the friends, and the rest of it, of chapter 16 and 17, he is addressing God. And by the way, if you think about it, this is probably entirely appropriate. I mean, why would he address people who think so low of him, have such a low opinion of him? Instead, he speaks to God. Verse 1 of chapter 16. Then Job replied, I have heard many things like these, miserable comforters are you all. Will your long-winded speeches never end? What ails you that you keep on arguing? I also could speak like you if you were in my place. I could make fine speeches against you and shake my head at you. But my mouth would encourage you. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. Yet if I speak, my pain is not relieved. If I refrain, it will not go away. One writer has observed that loneliness is the deepest kind of suffering. As Job's world falls apart bit by bit, he runs the gamut of emotions, agony and anger, depression and doubt, hostility and futility. Behind each of these reactions, however, is the hidden assumption that his relationship with God and his three friends, even though reduced to a fraying thread, remains intact. At this point, however, I think Job feels entirely alone. God is silent. He wishes his friends would be silent, but they're not. They are miserable comforters. Miserable comforters are you all. What an oxymoron if there ever was one. Those who are comforters are, in fact, not to be miserable. They are to be those who encourage. Job, for all his loneliness, wants them to leave him alone. He'd like to think that if their places were reversed, that he would encourage them, 
he could make fine speeches the way that they've been doing it, but that he would encourage them. He would comfort them that with words that would bring them relief. But as it stands, Job feels like he is all alone. And in such a situation, when your friends have abandoned you, to whom do you turn? You turn to God. I would argue that at this point, it serves no purpose to debate his friends. They're not listening to him. They twist his words. They're like, you said this, when in fact he did not. And they are set in their opinions and in their theology, and there is no flexibility. It's purely cause and effect. And Job, you are suffering the effects of your sins. These are the causes. So he turns to God in prayer. As others in the Old Testament have done, we've seen, Job prays in what one might call a reckless manner. The purpose of his prayers and the purpose of the prayers we've seen elsewhere in the Old Testament is not to break off a relationship with God, to say, that's it, I wash my hands, I'm, I'm out of here, I'm done with you, God. But rather to say to God, what's going on? You're God, you're the creator, I'm the creature, and something's going on here and I don't understand. It is, in a sense, to hold God accountable for his side of what appears to be a broken relationship. We had this thing going on and now it's not and okay, I'm imperfect, I know that, but I think something's wrong on your end of this relationship and, and what is it you're doing and why are you doing what you're doing? Job is not declaring independence. It's like, I'm going to stand on my own. I'm going to be the captain of my fate. No. As I said, his prayers express a kind of upside-down trust that God can handle anything and everything we have to say and that God and God alone can answer the cries of our heart. I've said this before, but I would argue that Job can argue with God in part because he knows who gave him existence and who sustains him. And I've said before, I would suggest that many Christians today cannot challenge God in prayer as Job did because they are not convinced that they owe their existence to him. We are, as I've said, too scientific for our own good. We know the biology of our existence. We do not know the theology of our existence. Job does. And so he turns to God in prayer. There are four parts to his his prayer, if you wish. The first is a, a personal lament with a complaint to God in verses 7 to 17. Chapter 17, if you'll follow along. Or chapter 16. Surely, O God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. You have bound me and has become a witness. My gauntness rises up and testifies against me. God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. My opponent fastens on me his piercing eyes. Men open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to evil men and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well with me, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. He made me his target. His archers surrounded me. Without pity, he pierces my kidneys and spills my gall on the ground. Again and again, he bursts upon me. He rushes at me like a warrior. I have sewn sackcloth over my skin and buried my brow in the dust. My face is red with weeping. 
Deep shadows ring my eyes. Yet my hands have been free of violence, and my prayer is pure. This section reminds me so much of something we find in the book of Ruth, in Ruth chapter 1. It starts out, there's this couple from Bethlehem, Elimelech, which means, his name means, my God is king, and Naomi, which means pleasant. They and their two sons moved to Moab because there's a famine in Bethlehem. There's no food, nothing's growing. So they moved to Moab. The two sons marry Moabite women. And as time goes on, Elimelech dies. And then Naomi's two sons die. She decides to return to Bethlehem. She heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them. So she's going to go back home. And her two daughters-in-law want to go with her. She says, no, you should not. She convinces one of them, Orpah, to return home. But Ruth insists on going with Naomi. And then we read, this is in Ruth 1, verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. That means pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara. That means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted. The Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Like Job, Naomi attributes what has happened to her as coming from God. You will note that she refers to God as the Almighty. At the beginning of the series, I pointed out that the term the Almighty appears 31 times in Job and only 17 times in the rest of the Old Testament. Well, two of those times are in the verses we just read. For Job and his friends... This is who God is. He is the Almighty. And for Naomi, it is the same. I think we oftentimes fall into a trap of attributing the good things, the blessings, that they come from God. And the bad things and the difficulties we attribute to who? What? Um, either God is the Almighty or he is not. And even in his lament, Job is very clear that what has happened to him is from the hand of God. And this is what makes his situation even more difficult. It might be more bearable if you could say, well, there's another God out there and he's the one who has afflicted me. There's some other cause out there that has brought this on me. But Job knows this is from God. I don't know that we're willing to accept that. God forgive us that we're not. We love it when good things happen. We think he has abandoned us when bad things happen. Naomi said, this is what the Almighty has done to me. This is from the hand of God. Now at the end of chapter 16, we come on a fascinating passage, one about which commentators disagree they have two extreme views. It's 
what I would call the heavenly witness. Look at verse 18. O earth, do not cover my blood. May my cry never be laid to rest. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend, and my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. Only a few years will pass before I go on the journey of no return. Verse 20 is the difficult verse, and it, this is the one that there, you have different translations. The NIV, in fact, has uh, a footnote with an alternate transla um, translation, my friends treat me with scorn. But the word is translated as mediator, we'll see in chapter 33. So, in fact, there is an intercessor, Job says, someone in heaven who is his witness, his advocate, his intercessor, his friend. And who could this be? Who could this friend, intercessor, advocate, witness be? It is God himself. Job believes that God will be his witness, his advocate, his intercessor, and his friend. Because God knows all things. He is the Almighty. But Job says, only a few years will pass before I go the journey of no return. Now we have the personal lament. Again, this is all of chapter 17. And by the way, because we have just read these wonderful words of, I have a friend, I have an intercessor, I have a witness, an advocate. People are like, yeah, so he's, Job's on this upward trajectory. He can't possibly then sort of sink into despair. Um, I think this fails to take into account the nature of human experience. It's a roller coaster. Have you not experienced that in one moment you can just be filled with great confidence and faith and gratitude and shortly thereafter just be in despair? This is what we hear from Job. The first verse, these three lines express the depth of his despair. My spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. His desire for life, his spirit is gone. All that, you know, the next thing is death. That's it. Surely mockers surround me. My eyes must dwell on their hostility. And who are these mockers? And where does this hostility come from? His friends. Verse 3. Give me, O God, the pledge you demand. Who else will put up security for me? Who will pay, pay his bail? Who will pay his bond? Certainly not his friend. By the way, back in chapter 6, Job said a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. We saw that this is actually not the way it should be translated. It's like, you're abandoning me, you're abandoning God. Well, his friends may have abandoned Job and God, but he knows that God, in fact, has not abandoned him. They are of no help whatsoever. Verse 4. This is a key verse. It's a fascinating verse. You have closed their minds to understanding. Therefore, you will not let them triumph. Why won't Job's friends help? Why are they saying the things they are saying? Because God has blinded them to the reality of what's happening to Job. Job's just getting it on every hand. I mean... Here are his friends who could comfort him, but God has blind. 
It's like God is against Job at every, at every turn. He has blinded Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So they're saying these horrible, horrible things to their friend. But Job again says, this is from the Almighty. Do they bear personal responsibility? Absolutely. When we get to the end of the book, um, God will tell Job, yeah, you need to sacrifice for your friends because they've really messed up big time. They bear personal responsibility, but God has blinded them. Verse 5, if a man denounces his friends for reward, the eyes of his children will fail. God has made me a byword to everyone, a man in whose face people spit. Job's humiliation in the community is deep. When people see him, they are so repelled by him, they shout reproaches. Oh, there goes Job. And they spit in his face. And on it goes, verse 7. My eyes have grown dim with grief. My whole frame is but a shadow. Upright men are appalled at this. The innocent are aroused against the ungodly. Nevertheless, the righteous will hold to their ways, and those with clean hands will grow stronger. But come on, all of you, try again. I will not find a wise man among you. My days have passed, my plans are shattered, and so are the desires of my heart. These men turn night into day. In the face of darkness, they say, light is near. If the only hope I have is for the grave, if I spread out my bed in darkness, if I say to corruption, you are my father, and to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who can see any hope for me? Will it go down to the gates of death? Will we descend together into the dust? In this lament, Job expresses the agony of the dishonor, the disgrace, the shame in human society. He used to be one of the wealthiest men. And now he's sitting in the town dump. People are spitting on him. But he's also expressing the agony of estrangement from God. It seems that God is the architect of Job's suffering. God has marshaled together the forces of affliction and thrown them at Job. By causing his body to waste away, God is making Job's very body a witness against himself. It's like, boy, you're a great guy, right? Look at your... The gauntness testifies against me, Job says. God has increased his suffering socially by blinding his friends. They cannot discern matters accurately. He has, God has turned them into mockers. They've gone from friends and comforters to mockers. And yet in the midst of despair, Job has not given up hope. He points, as we saw, to a witness in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friends. As I said, some people have argued that, yeah, we're really not, we're mistranslating or we're misinterpreting what he says at the end of chapter 16. Because Job reverts again to despair. And I would disagree. Psalm 73 is the psalm of Asaph. In verse 21, when my spirit was grieved and my heart, or my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. This is what Asaph is saying. In the midst of difficulties, I just lost it. 
I was like an, a, a beast. I was like an animal before you, God. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You may remember that Job said in his, in his primal scream, the thing that he feared happened to him. We talked about, what is it that Job feared? Was it losing his kids? Was it losing all his possessions? Was it his, life, his wife turning against him? His friends turning against him? No. His greatest fear is losing God. And so Asaph says, on earth I desire nothing besides you. God, you're it. You are my hope. You are what my life is about. Whom have I in heaven but you, and on earth I desire nothing besides you. Asaph says, my flesh and my heart may fail. Not to bring you down, but you know what? One day your heart and your flesh will fail. We will all die. That's the way it is. This life is temporary. God is eternal, and his grace is as well. So while Job is on, I would say, an emotional and perhaps even spiritual roller coaster, going from great faith to deep despair, he still knows that God is there. And the question is, God, you're there. It's not if you are there. It's you are there. Why aren't you answering me? Why aren't you speaking Job still trusts in God in the midst of great difficulty. By God's grace, may we follow his example. But the story's not over. Mm-hmm. Bildad's going to take his shot at him, as we will see the Lord willing next Sunday. Let's pray together. Our Father, we've probably never said this, but we imagine you to be a God that will make everything go smoothly. You're the God of good things, of good days, of blessings, and and not of dark days or difficulty, but you are the Almighty. May we learn from Job, not from his friends, but from Job that you are a God of grace Our time here is so short. One day our flesh, our hearts will fail. But you are our witness, our advocate, our friend. May we never lose sight of that. May you be our highest desire, our deepest desire. You who made us and who sustains us. You who are with us every step of the way. You've written down all our days in a book even before we were born.
we like these words when things are going well. But we need to hear them when things are not going well. May we not be people who simply trust you as Satan said about Job when things are going well. But may we be like Job that even when things are going horribly wrong, we trust you. We don't understand, but the understanding is not necessary. We thank you for your love and for your peace. Open our eyes to see your truth. We thank you for this Sunday, the beginning of a new week. May your spirit and grace go with us as we walk every step this week. May we be aware that you're with us, that you sustain us. And by thinking of the Lord Jesus, may we know that you love us deeply. Watch over us this week, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.